Uh, if you got your Bible, we're going to be in Galatians 5. Turn it on, open it up. Galatians 5, starting in verse 13. We're in a series exploring the Holy Spirit. If you're visiting with us, you haven't been here in a while. Um, just like all the activities, the mystery, the power, the privileges that come from being in a relationship with him. Because as we kind of noted in the, the very beginning of this series is that the Holy Spirit isn't a thing, it's a person. And, um, and today we come to the idea of growth, like to spiritual growth and maturity. And what we're doing is we're trying to explore what does it mean for the Spirit to grow and mature us as people, as Christians, and what role do we play in that, you know? And how, does, how do we interact with the Holy Spirit in terms of our own maturity as Christians? And Galatians 5, starting in 13, really the whole letter, I would encourage you to read it, but... Um, and, and you can read it, it's quick read. But Galatians 5, especially, this, this passage 13 through 26, is just such a great explicit teaching on this topic of growth uh, through and by the Holy Spirit. And so let, let's pick up and read what Paul has to say here, uh, starting in verse 13 there. And we'll read down to 26. Uh, For you were called to freedom, brothers... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a kid, maybe six or seven-ish, it's hard to remember when I was little, I was young, um, I received from my grandfather a BB gun at Christmas. It was amazing. It's a daisy, pump action. I was Rambo overnight. Um, it was, I was fascinated. I could not believe that I got a BB gun, especially a BB gun at that age. And... Um, it was a really pivotal moment, uh, strange enough. It's like one of these moments, I know you got these moments from your childhood that you think and you can remember, and it's, 
it's just so visceral to you. you know, this is a pivotal moment for a little boy's head. But I remember my mother being really ticked off about the whole thing. And um, it was an interesting dynamic, right? Like it was this, it was this family feud of sorts. See, this, this was a gift from my grandfather, which happened to be her father, whom she loved and respected. And so this brought an interesting tension uh, into the family. And so um, she protested it, right? She, in her eyes, thought that this was reckless, that no six, seven-year-old little boy should have the freedom of such power <laughs> over his shoulder. And, um, but it didn't matter. The protest didn't change anything. According to my grandfather, on his property at least, um, I was free. And we got along great, he and I. Um, but, you know, in his backyard, in, in, in his field, he had a big piece of property. You know, I was allowed to go out and explore and to learn. And that's how it worked. You know, I can just remember him saying to me, you know, Matthew, here, here's the deal, man. Here's how it works. He, would sh he showed me, taught me, you know, proper, like, gun safety, be good safety. <laughs> and, um, and he kind of gave me a list of things, like animals, you know, then things you can't shoot. Um, and, and then he just, but then outside of that, it was like, go, go explore, go learn, go figure it out. Um, my grandfather, you know, for my grandfather, freedom with the BB gun was important for a little boy. And, 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 and so was the responsibility of learning um, how to steward it. It was important for him. And were there risks in this gift? Of course, right? Like, for sure, my, for my grandfather, there was, he knew this, and, and I made mistakes. Um, but freedom was essential for my grandfather. Well, so Paul is making a very similar argument in this letter to um, these, this group of churches in this region called Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey now, if you want to know where these churches were placed. In the context of what you read, um, Paul is stressing this, that the Christian life lived properly. The Christian life lived properly has the potential for dangerous mistakes, but the Christian life is free, or it's not real Christianity. It's, it's free. You are free. And the Christian freedom, is that's essential for Paul. He will have it no other way. This is what Christ has purchased by his death and his resurrection. He's bought a new group of people, a new humanity. He's created a new humanity. He's redeemed them. He's rescued them. And he hasn't died and resurrected to give them a new set of rules and laws so that they might behave in a particular way to get into a relationship with God. He's done it to purchase the relationship so that you can go out and live freely. And in that freedom, try to figure out what it means to live responsibly. And that's the mark of true love, right? Love properly understood is equal parts freedom and responsibility. It's the equation I use with my kids all the time. I'm gonna give you freedom, and the more freedom I give you, the more responsibility that you have. And the way I'm gonna measure whether this thing is an equal balance is whether it equals out to love. Did you show love to your friends? Did you show love to your mom? Did you show love to me? That's how it works in the Christian life. And well-meaning people, of course, you know, like my mother, 
I'm not attacking my mom. My mom's great, by the way. But well-meaning people bristle like my mom did with the BB gun. Well, freedom, but let's be honest here. Freedom's dangerous. You know? It's reckless. Look at how people behave. It's not as if you profess Christ and go under the baptismal waters and you come out and, well, now you're just going to behave properly all the time. It doesn't really work that way. And so people protest the idea of freedom. And we, you know, I get it. You get it, right? Because people don't behave well, you know? I mean, how long have you been a Christian? I've been a Christian a long time. There's still a lot of really bad behavior. So let's just be honest. Like, there's still things. I'm like, why is this still here? Nobody's been dealing with this for years. You know? I should be further along than this. And so the Christian lives in this like liminal space where we're like redeemed and righteous, but in need of renovation all the time. You know, it's like Christians are like driving downtown in Cincinnati. It's like, is it always under construction? Yes, it will always be under construction. Let's just embrace that. End of sermon, let's pray. You know what I mean? Um, so what's the strategy that we employ or deploy for renovation and this part of renovation. If you're serious about your faith in Christ, and so many of you are, I know so many of you, and you take this, this thing, this, this relationship with Jesus very seriously. And if, if you do, you, you're, and you're like me, and you've worked this out over years, you know, you know how hard it is to get rid of certain temperaments and struggles, you know? Like some of you don't have all the most wonderful temperaments about your personality, do you? I certainly don't. And so you try to work them out, you try to figure out, and, and it kind of goes something like this, you know, you, you start to try to figure out what it means to just behave differently. Um, and so you look at this description, you know, you look at the description Paul lays out for the person living fully equipped and empowered by the Spirit of God, and it's, it's just, who doesn't want it? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and it's fruits, not fruits, it's fruit, you know, so they're all kind of symmetrical and attached and you can't have one without the other. They all kind of grow together. And if you're like a normal, serious Christian, like so many of you are, at least at some point, you look at the description like this and you're energized by it and you go, okay, I'll just learn the list and go out and implement, right? And then you live like half a day and then you're humiliated. It's like me with this, I play this game. It's called Mental Blocks with my kids. Anybody know this game, Mental Blocks? Some of you are laughing. This is like one of those games that has a three plus on it. So, I mean, it's like for little, little, little kids. So the way the mental blocks works is you get this cluster of shapes, circles, squares, X's. You get this group of them. And then what you do is against the competitor, you hold, there's this card, you flip over it and it has an arrangement of these shapes, right? And you're allowed to look at it for 30 seconds, I think. And then you flip the card back over so you can no longer see it. And it's like, implement what you just saw. So like what happens is the card comes up and I'm like looking at it and I'm memorizing it. And it's like, okay, this here, this here, this here. I got it. I got it. I got it. And then we, you, know, you flip the card over and it's gone. I mean, I am. So here's the thing. Um, my kids, I'm better at like a thousand things than my kids. Everything. Name thing, something. I'm better than them at it. <laughs> Except this. I cannot beat them. 
which has something to do with mental plasticity. I mean, something. So one of you smarter people in the room can maybe take me and say, look, here's what's going on in the brain, and yours is getting calcified. And so, like, there's something there, because my kids are like, oh, yeah, it's this, this, and this. And they're just looking at me like, you're an idiot. And, um, but Christianity is like mental blocks, man. Like you look at the Bible, you read it and you should, it's a means of grace and it is how we change. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to get into this, but man, you try to just do it in your flesh and in your power. And this is what, and it just doesn't work. Paul said it's like this. It's just Romans 7, uh, 18. He, he says it explicitly, right? He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's what he said. Yeah, so you're not the first person to feel that way or to think that way about your own life. So what do you do about it? <laughs> That's the thing. How is this supposed to work? How do we live as free people but live freedom responsibly that actually ends up creating love in our surroundings and with our family and our friends and our coworkers and these things? Because Paul is clearly not calling us to be passive and idle, is he? Like the, the, the passage you read is not at all saying that. No, he says... He says, walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Like Paul is, like freedom is essential, but yet he's cautioning you, isn't he? He's saying, but listen, there's a, there's a role that you play in this. And so what does that mean? What does it mean? I mean, this is something I've just been thinking about a lot. And, and, and it, what does it practically mean for you to go out and walk by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. Well, here's what I think. Um, I think that it means to carry a story around. And we live by stories, right? You're living out a story, whether, you know, whether you're aware of it or not. Um, you're telling yourself a story every day. And the story you're telling yourself and I don't mean you wake up in the morning and you start to rehearse it, but it, there is something playing out, right? It's been forming over time, maybe since your childhood. And the story you're telling yourself gives shape. It gives texture. It gives meaning. It gives purpose or lack thereof to everything you're encountering every day. So what's the story you're saying about you, yourself? I'm the hero or I'm always the victim or I'm all, you know... There's a story. I'm this, I'm dumb, I'm the smart one. I'm the easy to get along with one. You're telling yourself one. You've picked it up from people along the way. And what walking by the Spirit is, I think what Christian maturity is, is, is learning a new story and then telling yourself that so it frames how you see the world around you all the time. And that's the work you play. That's the work that you have. That's what Paul, I think, is saying here. Is you have to constantly tell yourself a story that orients you back to the love of Jesus and the battle that the Spirit is raging against your old self. Because that's clearly what's happening in Galatians 5, is he's saying, look, you've, you, if you, you're a Christian, you've got a battle going on inside you. It's like, in metaphor, like it, metaphorically speaking, your life is like a war zone in a garden all at the same time, every day. 
And your job is to tell yourself this story that there's this, that Jesus loves you and that, that changes everything and he's doing a work in you and he's fighting battles inside of you right now against your old self. Not, to be clear, Paul doesn't have any problems with like the flesh, the body. The Bible's pro-body, by the way. Go all the way back to the beginning. What he, he says the desires of the flesh. So it's the old, it's the old desires that were hanging around and have been hanging around since you know you met Christ and, and started to do this reconstruction work. And so here's the thing. I, three, there's three plot lines, I would say, to this story that you're telling yourself. There could be many more. I would encourage you to write more if you would like to write more. But there's at least th- three that I see here in this passage. And here's the first one. You're, you need to walk uh, with a sense of belonging. You need to walk with a sense of belonging. And, and he says it very plainly in verse 24 there, that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Um, he, and in Galatians 2, he says it another way. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He keeps bringing this back up, that you have to tell yourself this story that there's been a death and a resurrection. That's what I mean by belonging. Now, by death and resurrection, I, I, of course, I mean Christ's death and resurrection. That's first and, 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 and absolutely critical to this story. But Paul's talking about your crucifixion, <laughs> you know, and, and we lose sight of that sometimes, um, which is a theological way of saying whoever... Whoever was here before is gone now. That guy, that girl, whoever he or she was, is gone now. And so the life you now have in the flesh is this completely different person that you're in some ways trying to figure out. Who is this? And I think the freedom in the gospel doesn't just mean that there's freedom from laws to get righteousness or right standing with God, it means you're free from your old self. Like you can be free from the old you. Now, let me just say something critically important to all of us, but I think that there's a chance that maybe only a few of you are gonna hear me in this room this morning. If you're really believing and trusting in Jesus, you're allowed to hold on to and believe in a completely different story for yourself. And I, I might sound like so self-evident and plain. Of course I'm allowed, but it's, I'm convinced that some of us need to be told that you absolutely have permission to tell a different story about your life. And the reason why I say that is because um, some people don't want you to have a different story. You know what I mean? Mommy doesn't want you to have a different story. Daddy doesn't want you to have a different story. Or your spouse or your friends, whatever it is, like th- th- these are difficult for people. And because for you to tell a different story, would mean for you to be a different person. For you to be a different person would mean that they would need to all of a sudden deploy imagination and curiosity and figure out who you are. And that's a lot of work, and they don't want to do it. 
So what's easier is to say, this is how I've known her. This is how I've known him. This is how he or she will always be. And uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the voice inside of your head that says, you don't have to listen to them. You're allowed to be different now. I'm empowering you to be different now. And I want you to be different now. And so your first job is to listen to that voice more than the voices of the people who lack imagination. Now, don't hear me wrong, because there's some of you, maybe right now, who are thinking, well, what about mistakes? And what about, like, you know, owning your mistakes and apologies? Well, I'm not done yet with my sermon. So hold on, because this is the second thing here. It's not just that you walk with a sense of belonging and you, you, can, you have a new story that, look, that old guy, that old girl is gone. It's gone. The new person here. But you also, this is the second, you walk with an expectation of incompetence. You expect incompetence. You know, so, and here's my little theory. We Christians need to stop being surprised or devaluing the moments when we feel humiliation or that feeling of internal incompetence coming on inside of us. We need to stop being surprised. And really, in some ways I would say this, like even like, I'll go as far as to say this, and I, this was my original point and I erased it, but now I'm gonna say it. So um, I think that we should appreciate incompetence more inside of ourselves. Moments of incompetence and humiliation is sacred soil. That's what I've come to learn. You learn more from your failure than your successes. Success is a horrible teacher. And so don't take me the wrong way. Like I don't want mechanics savoring their incompetence as they fix my brakes. You know, I just love being incompetent. Um, I don't, okay, but... But, but the thing of it is, I do want to experience more Christians who readily reflect and discuss their incompetence around their patience, their self-control, their lack of gentleness. This is something I've been saying for a long time, and this is something that we talked about in the rest cohort and, 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 rest cohort and things around like spiritual disciplines or means of grace, as some people call them, like things like reading your Bible, praying. These are the things that it's, it's very counterintuitive the way the Spirit works. What I'm saying is, is that if holiness is the what you're after, which it should be if you're a Christian, so if holiness is what you're after, the way you get holiness is to talk about your lack of holiness. You get it? It's, it's for you to start to discuss and reflect on the lack thereof and the fact that it's not there inside of you. That's where the, that's good soil that you tilling up the ground, the spirit to do his work. And so, you know, notice that um, Paul has no illusions about our lack of ability to get ourselves straightened out in our own power, does he? Notice what he says this, and you can look at verse 19, you can look at verse 22, and he says, he calls the bad, sinful qualities of the human life. What does he call them? He calls them works, doesn't he? 
But what does he call the good, loving qualities of Christian maturity? He calls them fruit. So he changes the language on us. Works is something you can muster up. You can will it through grit, can't you? You know, it's like, if I can go out and sin really good right now, I mean, I can do it. I can promise you that. My own power, I can do some pretty bad stuff. But the fruit, fruit's different. You, you can, fruit doesn't work that way. I mean, you can work the conditions for the seed, the sun, the soil, and all that. But if you've ever grown anything, you know you're at the mercy of this magical process of organic chemistry and photosynthesis and, and, and all of that. You know, I, I planted a lot of trees a, a few years ago, and it was literally right before those cicadas came. And I just watched as they got decimated, you know. Nothing I could do about it. And you're sitting there like, yeah, you could have thrown a net over him. Well, I didn't read about that part. This is the beauty, though, of, of Paul's metaphor. It captures the mysterious dance, the feel, the calling of, of how to understand the Christian growth, the idea of Christian growth and change. It's that growth, real growth, real maturity in you as a Christian isn't in your power. You know, and I, man, I, I wish someone, maybe they did and I just wasn't listening, but I just, when I was a much, much, much younger fledgling Christian, I wish someone would have said to me, yeah, your work matters, but man, this isn't really something that you can control. Like, maturity doesn't work that way. It is totally a work of God. It's not in your power. It's not in your ability. Philippians 2, 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, you, you and I can't manufacture fruit in our lives any more than you can manufacture fruit in a garden, much as you would like that. And you can practice and work towards it, and you should. Don't hear me the wrong way. <laughs> I'm all for effort. Um, but you have to maintain this vigilance around your honesty that you're coming up short all the time. It, it's like this, if, you, if you've got such a fragile ego and such defensive posture around your lack of progress or your own incompetence, you'll always lack the vulnerability needed. That creates good soil. Um, th th this is how Richard Foster put it. He says, when we despair of gaining inner transformation through human powers of will and determination, we are open to a wonderful new re realization. Inner righteousness is a gift from God to be graciously received. You see what he's saying? Like if you start to experience that feeling of like incompetence, that's opportunity for you. That's opportunity for you to say, I want this and I can't. And God says, good. That's a good place to be. Did you think you were going to do it on your own? There's this wonderful little story. I've been absolutely obsessed with this little story in John 9. Anybody who's hung out with me or friends with me, they're like, here we go. He's going to talk about John 9 again because I love it so much. It tells this wonderful little story at the end of John 9. Jesus healing this blind man. And... Afterwards, the blind man is interrogated by the religious leaders. They're at this point very suspicious. That's probably a kind way of putting it over Jesus. And so they interrogate this guy. 
more than once. They even go to the guy's parents. Like, what's going on? They're like, we don't know. Talk to him. He's of age. He can explain for himself. So they go to the guy, and they don't like what he has to say. And, you know, the guy's really snarky about it. The guy's like, do you want to be his disciples too? And why do you keep interrogating me? And so they're having this back and forth with him. And, and finally, they don't like, the religious leaders don't like what the guy has to say. Because now, he, you know, he's like, once I was blind, now I see. That's all I can tell you. And they don't like what the guy has to say, so they kick him out. They cast him out of the, the synagogue. And so they, Jesus goes and finds him. He's heard about this. And he, he, so he goes and finds him. And he, he asks him, look, do you believe in me? Do you believe I'm the son of man, he asks him. And, you know, the guy's like, well, you know, I think so. And then he finally confesses and says, Lord, I, Lord, I believe. And then this is what Jesus says to him. He says, for judgment, I came into this world. And please notice this. He says that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. And this is what John clues this in. He says, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things. And so they said to him, oh, oh, so are we also blind? Mr. Jesus? And look at what Jesus says back to them. He said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Do you get it? Isn't that brilliant? Jesus is saying, I'm not surprised by your blindness. I'm not surprised by your incompetence. I'm not surprised that you're unrighteous. That's why I'm here. I'm totally here for your unrighteousness. I can totally handle all of your unrighteousness. I'm not here to handle your self-righteousness. I'm not here to deal with you by you saying that I don't need any help. It's not who I'm for. Your guilt remains so long as you think you can mature yourself in your own power. It's not how it works. When those moments and feelings come on, they're so hard, right? These, these moments of incompetence, these moments of like, gosh, I wish I was more gentle and I'm not. Gosh, I wish I had more self-control. I stink at this. When these things come on, they're hard, but it's the desires of the flesh that say, hide it, pretend, be defensive, blame shift, put it on him, put it on her. You know what? They're more to blame than you. That's the flesh talking. Because the Spirit is saying to you, it's whispering to you, He's whispering to you, and He's saying, what are you so afraid of? Lean in. Own it. This is good soil here. I can do great work with this. Ask for help. When you're feeling and expressing your blindness, what the Bible is saying is, paradoxically, now you're beginning to see. Now you're actually beginning to use those new eyes. Three, last thing here. So we're talking about belonging. We're talking about expect to be incompetent and, and, and learn to talk about it, share it, and be open to it. Thirdly, this, you walk with urgency, but not haste. All right? Urgency, but not haste. And what I mean here is, is that your story is one of passionate desire to see change, but you recognize that real transformation is just, it never happens quickly. And so if we think our story 
our narrative, our storyline is this is the story of a person that became different overnight, you've got the wrong narrative playing out in your head, right? That's nowhere in the Bible. Uh, that's not clearly, that's not the clear implication of fruit growing. There are no quick, easy fixes in the formation by the Spirit, you know? As I told you earlier, I planted, I've been planting a bunch of trees in my backyard, and, you know, some of them are only this tall, and my kids are running up to me as I'm planting them, and they're saying things like, Daddy, is this a tree I'm going to be able to climb? And I'm like, not really in your life? No, no, no. By the time it's that big, you won't want to climb it. You know, that, that's not how it works. I wish, but it's slow. And so there are just, there's, I wish spiritual formation and being mature and growth would happen quickly, but it's not. The formation of the Spirit if you think about it, and I, I've been thinking a lot about it, it's actually deliberately and purposely meant to go slow. By way of analogy, I'll keep talking about trees. I've recently learned that some trees in the forest grow best if they have ample time to grow slowly under a canopy of older trees. Like the shade actually is important for them. If something were to happen like natural disaster, uh, disease or human intervention, and the larger, taller trees that creating this canopy, this protection, if something happens, those fall away, get taken away, or whatever it is. The younger, smaller trees at the bottom. Well, now all of a sudden, it's like a shot of steroids. And they get this unmitigated dose of sunlight, which does what? Now all of a sudden, it shoots them up at a rapid pace, very quickly. Well, this might seem like great, wonderful, wrong. It's bad. Because of the rapid pace and the steroids that they've been shot up with, which isn't really all that natural, now what happens is while the tree is really, really tall, it's very, really, really slender, and the root system is not stable. And so it likely will not survive the long haul. That's you. That's the work God is doing. He's not giving you unmitigated <laughs> sunlight straight and just shoot off because you would be unstable. And honestly, you would be unbearable to be around. You get it? You don't want to be rushed. The tree, you see, is, it's not good to rush the tree in the long run. And the same is true for the Christian. And Paul said in Romans 5, like this, this is 3 through 5, not only that, he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Oh, oh and, and endurance produces character. Oh, 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 and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. I'll admit that um, slow growth is, what, is not what I prefer. I'd much rather it be quick but the Spirit keeps us at the right pace so that we gain real stability, real endurance, real character, real hope. And those don't come when we shoot up with quickness. Because I, what I've been learning, even in my own life, that a hurried change is an illusion. It's not real change at all. And it will show itself, right? Hurried, hurried change would, would, would just look like know-it-allism. It'll look like prideful arrogance. It, 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 it'll look like hypocrisy in the long run. It won't be the real love that the Spirit creates. And here's what 
slow growth does to people. It not only makes you stable in a world that will inevitably discourage you at moments, it'll also create in you a more loving presence, a more loving presence to offer people. Because what happens to people with slow, gradual growth is that they begin to really avoid shallow, quick fixes and answers they, they, for people that are hurting or struggling. They, they stop offering bits, trite biblical platitudes for people when they're struggling. They stop all of that because they know that that's nonsense and because they've lived life and they've been, they've been knocked around and they've taken their lumps. That's what slow growth does. You become so wonderful to be around. You become quick to listen, slow to speak, and you become more sensitive to the Spirit and what He's doing because you recognize, look, this, this, this young boy, this young girl, this man, this woman, they don't have the power to make this happen overnight because I didn't have that power. So you become compassionate. And isn't that what we all need more of from each other? And so as you come to the table this morning, I would encourage you to come to the table, the communion table, the Lord's Supper. I, I would encourage you to come listening. What part of this new story needs rehearsed for you this morning? Is it a sense of belonging? Is it a sense that you're allowed to change? Is it a sense that like, yes, this is hard and slow, but that's, it matters and it needs to be that way. You know, which part of all of it for you is important to rehearse this morning? And I would encourage you to rehearse it, to, to listen to the Spirit and what He's telling you. And I don't know everything that He wants to tell you this morning. But this, I do want you to hear, that this bread represents Christ's body broken for you. And this cup of wine represents Christ's blood shed for you. And if you're in a place where you know you need that, come to that table or this table, take a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice. They're both up here. There's gluten-free up here as well, if you prefer that. And I encourage you to take the time that you need. Let's pray. Father, it is difficult for us to rejoice in our sufferings, to rejoice in the slowness of it all, to rejoice even when we know we've made mistakes. The Christian life, unfortunately, is so full of blunders, and it would be best for us to start to readily admit that and to share it. And the more that we can all be vulnerable with each other and admit our failures, the more the place becomes safe, the more the community becomes loving, the more the community really reflects the Holy Spirit and all the work that he wants to do. And I would hope and I pray that I can do that and that I can model that for my kids and my family and my friends and this church. And we thank you so much for the word that you've given us and for the power and the help that you've provided. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.